So the question that we are going to aim to answer this morning is simply this. How do followers of Jesus live under a government that dismisses God? How do followers of Jesus live under a government that dismisses God? Uh, We're living in 2022, and we live in a nation that has a pledge that says we are one nation under God. Our currency is stamped with a statement that says, in God we trust, but we know that our government is mostly run by individuals who make decisions, who live lives and speak with a rhetoric that does not reflect submission to God. Now keep in mind that many nations of the world have no Christian influence in their politics. For example, the Muslim world, the Bible has no influence in Sharia law. In China, North Korea, India, Afghanistan, Indonesia, and a host of other countries, God is dismissed. And yet there are Christians living in those countries today, living under those governments that completely dismiss God. How do followers of Jesus, whether it's in the U.S. or a foreign country to ours, live under a government that dismisses God? Now, this is not a new question for us. This is a question that has been around for centuries, thousands of years. It was around especially 2,000 years ago when Jesus was living, but even before that, Israel, the nation from which Jesus was born from, had been living under the control of foreign governments for centuries. Keep in mind that Israel had lost her sovereignty as a nation back in 586 BC when Babylon sacked Jerusalem and set up a whole new form of government. Since that time, the Jews were pretty much under the control of pagan governments and pagan empires. Fast forward from that point, 586 BC now, forward 600 years to the time of Jesus. A series of empires had dominated over Israel, over the Jews, and now it's the Roman Empire. They were governing the Jewish people. And the Roman government completely dismissed the God of the Old Testament scriptures, Yahweh. And Jesus was born and lived under a government that could be characterized as godless. So if anyone knows how to live under a government that dismisses the one true God, if anyone knows how to live under that kind of government, it's Jesus himself. And we are his followers. We give our highest loyalty to him. So our obedience is ultimately bound to him. And so we're asking the question, we follow him. How do followers of Jesus live under a government that dismisses God? Well, in our sermon, we're going to see four truths that will help us answer that question. I'll give you those four truths now. And if you don't get them all now, I'll give them to you as we move through the sermon. Here are four truths that will help us. Number one, Jesus validates government, even pagan governments. Number two, God created government. Number three, we must obey government. And number four, we must obey God. Okay, so those four truths will help us answer that question 
And we're beginning with truth number one, Jesus validates government. So if you're joining us for the first time, we are in a study in the book of Mark. And we have been working paragraph by paragraph through the book of Mark, and we've come to chapter 12. And we're in verses 13 through 17. But previous to this paragraph, you need to know that Jesus is in the last week of his life before the cross. It's been his mission to move from the northern area of Galilee, head south, and he's teaching the truth of who he is. He is the Christ, the Son of God. He is inaugurating a new kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom in nature. He's moving into Jerusalem, and as he moves into Jerusalem, there are many people, crowds of people that are following him. So, he walks into the Jerusalem temple, the, the center of the city. And what he sees there is all kinds of religious corruption where the high priests, the religious leaders, have gladly taken the center of worship and converted it into largely a center of commerce where sacrifices are being sold and currencies are being exchanged. And Jesus looks at this and says, no, this is supposed to be a place of meditation and prayer. And he walks into the temple complex, upends the tables, drives out the business dealers, and, if you will, cleanses the temple of its commerce and corruption. The religious leaders come up to him, they can't have any of this. They say, by what authority have you done these things? And so Jesus doesn't respond with a direct answer. Instead, he tells them a parable. And in the parable, it's about an owner who owns a vineyard. That's what we covered last week. And this owner sends messengers to the workers in the vineyard, but the messengers are killed by the workers over and over. So eventually he sends his son, and the son is killed by the workers in the vineyard. And the answer to the question, by what authority do you do these things? The religious leaders are knowing that he is indirectly answering them, I do this by the authority of my father, the owner of the vineyard. Now they're ticked at him. And they're trying to trap him. They're trying to get rid of him because he's starting a movement that is eroding them as leaders. And so in verse 13, our paragraph this morning, it says that they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, two unlikely groups are forming a coalition here. Here are the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees are Jewish leaders, religious leaders, who are anti-Roman government. They want their Jewish Messiah to come and rescue them from underneath, out from underneath the empire. There's also the Herodians. They are another Jewish group, and they are pro-Roman government. They're Jews who enjoy an upper echelon status in society, probably because they have supported the government, and that government in return has given them a level of upper class status. It's an unlikely alliance, and yet this alliance could be summarized by that saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And right now, both of these groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, look at Jesus as their enemy, and they say, okay, we've been at odds with one another, but if you're an enemy of Jesus, we're an enemy of Jesus, let's be friends together. So this group, this alliance is coming before Jesus, and they want to trap him with their words. 
And in verse 13, just real quickly, it says that they sent this group. Who is the they that sent the Pharisees and the Herodians? It's the chief priests, it's the scribes, it's the elders, it's the religious leaders that have cooked up this plan to try to make Jesus look bad. So in verse 14, here we see Jesus standing before two groups of people. And in this conversation, they begin with flattery. Verse 14, they say, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's appearances or anyone's opinions. You're not swayed by appearances, how people look, but you truly teach the way of God. So here's this group. They call him a teacher. There's an automatic title of respect. And when they speak about his genuineness, they say, you're not swayed by anyone. We know that what you say comes from the heart. You have conviction. You know, you're not disturbed by anybody's appearances. You're not swayed by how they look in front of you. And you truly teach the way of God. Okay, let's get the flattery out of the way. What's going on here? Here's the test. They ask the question, is it lawful or right? And by asking it that way, they're asking, is it right in God's eyes to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now put yourself in this situation for just a moment. You have the Pharisees who hate the Romans asking this question. And of course, they think that you as a Jew should not have to pay taxes to this pagan Roman government. And on the other hand, you have this group of Jews, the Herodians, who support Herod's dynasty. And they believe you should contribute to the coffers because after all, you live in the Roman Empire. Now there's another part of this story that's not in the text, but is in history to this. In the year 6 AD, a man by the name of Jewish Judas became so enraged over the Jewish taxes or the taxes that were imposed on the Jews that he led a revolt against the empire and the empire squashed him. And the idea is here that if Jesus would go down that path of Judas, He's going to be facing the Roman government, and he's going to be squashed. So here's the Pharisees. Here's the Roman government. Here's the question. The Romans believed that their Caesar was Lord. They mocked the Jewish customs. Should we pay taxes to this government? I mean, they're pagan in all of their ways. And the Pharisees are standing there. They're shaking their head no. And then there's the Herodians shaking their head, well, yep, we owe him taxes. So that's the test. How's Jesus going to respond? Well, Mark says in verse 15 that he knows their hypocrisy. He knows that behind this question is not a desire to learn, but a desire to ruin him. And so he cuts right through the hypocrisy. Now, I, I was thinking about this this last week. What could we compare this moment to? It's kind of like the briefing room at the White House. You know where those, you know, press people are, the journalists are, and they're all asking questions, but you know that they're asking questions to try to make the leader either look really good or look really bad. And no way, it doesn't matter how you answer it, they're going to run with a story that goes one direction or another. That's what Jesus is in right now. How is he going to cut through this? 
Well, he cuts through it first by just saying, why are you putting me to the test? I know what this is. You're not asking out of sincerity. And then he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Denarius was simply a Roman coin. It was worth the amount of one day's work, but it was also the coin that was required of the Jewish tax. So somebody brings him a denarius, and you can imagine Jesus looking at it for just a moment in front of the Pharisees, in front of the Herodians, and now the people who are gathered around him wondering, what is Jesus going to say? And he takes the coin and perhaps lifts it up and puts it in front of their faces, and, and he asks this question, whose likeness and inscription is this? Well, it's pretty obvious. The coin belongs to the Roman government because the picture or image of Caesar is on that coin. And so they say it's Caesar's coin. It belongs to Rome. So Jesus says this in verse 17. Here's the answer to your question. You must render or give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And we don't stop there to God the things that are God's. And with that answer right there, Jesus cuts through both of them. He addresses both groups with that statement saying it's not an either or position. It's a both and here. Caesar has a realm of authority and you need to render or give to Caesar within the context of his realm of authority, and God has a realm of authority, and you need to give unto God within that realm of authority. And the people standing there just marvel. They had never heard an answer like this. And yet this answer validates secular government. This answer says that secular government has a legitimate position to be where it is. Keep in mind, this is the same government that in just a few days will commit the most egregious of sins by putting Jesus on the cross. So here in verses 13 through 17, truth number one is simply this, that Jesus validates government with this statement. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God's. So as Christians, as Christ followers, we understand that government has a valid place. Now, why can Jesus make this statement? Why is it that he can validate government? What's the ground underneath that statement? Let's move on to point number two. Point number two is this. God created government. God created government. One of the earliest signs of government in the Bible is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. You probably could go back to Genesis 1, where God tells Adam to exercise dominion, to govern the world here. Genesis 9, 6 is one of those hallmark passages that we appeal to for the institution of government. So what does it say here? It says, whoever sheds the blood of men... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you say, well, where's government in that? 
the government in that is by the phrase, by man. So whoever sheds the blood of man, whoever commits a murder, God comes around and says, okay, by man shall his blood be shed, meaning that there is to be some sort of institution in place that takes care of the murder that's there. Man is supposed to govern over the murderer. Okay, let's look at the New Testament. I didn't put this on the screen. Let's go over to Romans chapter 13 for a few moments. Romans chapter 13. And take your Bibles and turn there because we'll be looking at this passage for a little bit. Seven verses here that I want you to see. God created government. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why is that? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been, here it is, instituted by God. Okay, so when you step back from verse 1, you see that God is in control and instituting every authority that exists. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Again, there's the language of God appointing. So God has created the government. God appoints the government. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. Now, notice the language there. The government is God's servant. So they should be ruling as though they are obedient obeying God there, but nonetheless, you see that God has appointed them to these particular tasks. Continues on, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. There's the language from Mark 12. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. To what thing? To carrying out the punishment, to carrying the sword. So verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. All right, so... Looking at Genesis 9 and Romans 13, we see a primary reason for which God created government. In Genesis, the murderer was to be dealt with. In Romans 13, those who practice bad conduct are to be dealt with. So a clear biblical purpose of government is to restrain and punish evil. That's what you see in these texts about why God has put government in place. So the next time that you hear that our jails and prisons are overcrowded, you can thank God that at least we have a government in place with prisons and jails that are overcrowded with people who need to be punished. Or else the streets would be filled with rapists and murderers and robbers. So 
that is a good thing that's in place there. Now, in terms of God creating government, you see Old Testament examples of God being pleased with his people entering into secular governments. So government is not a bad thing. God actually brings people along and says, I want to use you in government. You read about Joseph. Joseph, at the end of Genesis, he's a man who walks with godly integrity. God brings him into the Egyptian empire and places him at second in command to accomplish his purposes. There's Daniel. God's hand was on this man. God led Daniel through an exile where he's taken to Babylon, pagan government, and God appoints him to a high-ranking position in the Babylonian government. And so here you see that, again, God is using government. He's instituted government. And Jesus' statement about rendering things to Caesar, the things that are Caesar, is validating that government. We look at all of this and we say, of all people, Christians should never be anti-government. Jesus validates it. God created it. We accept it. We loathe corruption. We despise immorality. But even a corrupt government in place, like the Roman Empire, can have qualities sprinkled into it to accomplish God's good purposes, to restrain evildoers. So, as we see government, I think... We have to recognize that of all people in the world, we are followers of Christ, and the way that we speak about government should reflect the theology that God gives us about it. It's validated, God creates it, and so we honor it. Okay, point number three. Jesus commanded that we should obey government. In that statement, the one back in Mark, Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, meaning that in the realm of government, there are certain obligations, either financial or behavioral, that ought to be rendered or given to the government. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Okay, so here's this language now of obedience. Christians must be obedient to government out of obedience to God. Now, before I go any further, let me acknowledge perhaps the memory that many of us have and is still very fresh. Memories of COVID and memories of mandates. What is legal? What is law in America? Can somebody just stand up and say, I've made this law, therefore it must be obeyed? Let's admit this. Our forefathers had the genius to implement a government that was multifaceted in terms of authority so that one authority could not be absolute. The process of arriving at a point where a law goes into effect is complex. So somebody might stand up and say, I declare this. And we went through this as a church and we're like, what do we do because somebody declares this, but then here we have other leaders in our government saying, that's not even a law, right? We remember that as kind of fresh in so many different ways. So we get that there are times when obedience to government can be complicated, 
And I would say in all of that, we should have an attitude that is honoring to the Lord. And we must, even as a church, recognize that when we get to those points, we're going to say there are going to be matters of conscience in this that are not clear in our society. And so we want to live by the Spirit of God, exercising fruits like love and peace to one another and be honorable as we go through it. In all of this, though, let's not lose sight of this. Jesus commanded, obey government. Number four, Jesus commanded that we should obey God. That's the second phrase, render to God the things that are God's. And why is that statement present? It's present because, yes, we need to see that there are certain realms of authority that belong to God and only to God. The followers of Jesus recognize that with any authority, especially authority that is held by non-Christians who do not believe the word of God and do not have the indwelling of the Spirit, that authority in government has a potential and tendency to go beyond its scope of authority and start grabbing at areas that only belong to God. We have to recognize that. Jesus' statement serves as a blunt truth that government is not the only authority. Government is an authority, but its authority resides in the realm that God appoints it to to punish the wrongdoers. And there can be others that, for the good of society, that orders good and brings about structure. But Christians must recognize that government has a boundary to its authority, and that boundary ends, we could say, where God's authority begins. And we're not talking about dualism, like two separate areas, but Jesus makes this point, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You get that, render to God the things that are God's which then means that there's a limit to authority. Now, there are two subpoints that I'd like to make under this fourth point. The two subpoints are this. Government cannot command what God forbids. Government cannot command its people to obey itself where God forbids those kinds of actions. Government cannot forbid command what God forbids. You see this throughout scripture. Where do we see it? Exodus chapter 1. Here's the king of Egypt. And he said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah. I'm glad that there's no daughters here named Shifra and Puah. All right. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, okay, so they're in labor, Here's the king of Egypt. Here's what he says. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, here's what happens. The Hebrew midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And the text goes on to praise them for that. So here is the subpoint: Government cannot command what God forbids. There's that line of obedience to God, not the government. Daniel chapter 3, another example. Here we have Nebuchadnezzar gathering all the people of his kingdom together. And what is he going to do? Well, a herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, 
nations and languages that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Hmm. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Well, continue on. There are certain Jews... You have appointed, O Nebuchadnezzar, over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Why? Because what government had commanded, God had forbidden. They could not worship the idols. And so they obeyed God and disobeyed the government. Now, so point number two the flip side of some point number one. Government cannot forbid what God commands. Now we move through the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter six, and we see this, that government cannot forbid what God commands. Daniel chapter six, verses seven and following. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions. 30 days, no prayer allowed, prayer is only allowed, petitions are only allowed to the king. And to a king who has ego, this sounds good. It goes into effect. Verse 10, though, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. You remember the outcome. He's thrown into the lion's den and God protects him. Why did he do that? Because government cannot forbid what God commands. One last example from the New Testament, Acts chapter 5. Here's Peter and the apostles. They've been preaching the gospel. The authorities come to him. They say, you can't do this anymore. Acts chapter 5, verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, and they said, we must obey God rather than men. Okay, so folks, here is... Point number four and these subpoints underneath this truth that as followers of Jesus, we must obey God. God is our highest authority. And as our highest authority, let's remember point number three, where he commands us to obey government. Now, right now, thankfully, I cannot think of any particular act that the government commands you and I, you and me, to do today or this week that would be a direct act of personal disobedience to God. I can't think of anything where the government says, you must do this this week or in your life and that this is a direct act of disobedience. So we can be thankful that we live in a country, in a time, where we are not commanded right now to sin against God. And yet, if the time were to come where that would be the case, 
we would have to come back to these truths and realities where we would say, our highest loyalty is to God. I can't do that like a Daniel or a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or the apostles. I can't enter into that sin and practice that. Now keep this mind full circle. What about the corrupt government that is funding all kinds of sinful practices? Am I not participating in that sin when I give my taxes to that government? And here's Jesus looking at the Roman Empire who is going to carry out the worst of sins in just a few days. He says, no, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Why? Because the Caesar is accountable to God for what he does with your taxes. Not you. And so God in his grace can lead us along as followers of him and say and make these statements that are wisdom for us to follow. Just render to Caesar and render to God. Now, when the government commands what God forbids, I must obey God. I must choose God every time. Our government does regularly permit and legislate practices legalizing practices that are sinful and disobedient to God. And our government asks you now to vote in order to affirm or implement laws and legislation that is disobedient to God. Now, the Bible has something to say about that. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. We are living under a government that is accountable to God, where politicians are saying, this is right, therefore you should vote for it. And they are accountable to God. God says to them, woe to them. So the politicians in Lansing, the politicians in D.C. are all going to have to stand before the judge and answer for themselves. Now, for example, what would be a case of this? Tuesday, November 8th, you are going to vote on Proposition 3. There are a number of politicians who are calling evil good, who are putting darkness for light, using language like Proposition 3 is for the protection of women. And we say, of all people, Christians should be protecting women. In all places, or in any place, the place in and among Christians Women should be protected and spoken highly of. Language like reproductive care. Well, I've reproduced four times, and I'm happy for that. And I hope there's care in there. But when language like reproductive care is inserted into legislation, and it means something completely opposite of that, woe to those 
who call evil good and good evil. Woe to a governor who puts that kind of wording into a law trying to deceive those into thinking it's better than what it is at the expense of babies. So Prop 3 asks you to make abortions available to women all the way up to delivery. It's going to ask you to say yes to young girls who are pregnant to be able to access an abortion without parental permission. And when you think about the logic of that, that you can't send your kid to the doctor to get a hangnail taken care of without parental permission, this kind of legislation says, this is good, this is needed. And God, his perspective is, woe, woe to that leader who would call evil good. So here's a case where Christians are looking at Caesar, and they're looking at God. And you cannot get behind a government that commands what God forbids. Now, let me backtrack that. I shouldn't say it like that. You cannot vote for a piece of legislation where a government commands what God forbids. Government should not permit what God forbids, and in this particular occasion or this particular case, on Prop 3, Christians, whether you're Republican or Democrat, you would follow God when it comes to Prop 3. We must obey God. We must obey government. In government, we understand these principles that government cannot command what God forbids and government cannot forbid what God commands. We follow God. We recognize that God created government for our good and we're thankful for our government. And if anybody is here this morning who works in government, thank you for working in government. God has created the government and you are a part of his plan. Thank you for facilitating things along, even though there's all kinds of negativity and all kinds of even negative talk that comes from Christians. Thank you for your work. And we know that Jesus validated government. So, folks, as we go from here, let's be Christian in our attitudes. Let's be Christian in our rhetoric. Let's be Christian in our practice. But how can we end this sermon? Let me give you two passages in closing. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. We long for the day where righteousness will dwell. And here we see that according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and be at peace. So right now, this is where we live. This is where we are. God has called us to this particular time in history. And he says, be diligent right now to be found by him without spot or blemish and be at peace, even as it relates to this institution of government. But notice the first phrase that we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is what God is calling and moving us along to. There is coming a day 
where there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and all corruption will be gone. And what will be present and characteristic of all people in that new heaven and earth is righteousness. And you might be here and you might say, tell me more, tell me more. I just want you to know the path to this new heaven and a new earth is only through Jesus alone. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you eternal life. So friend, if you're here and you're here for the first time and you're hearing this language about government, you're hearing this promise about the future, about a new heavens and a new earth, it's the truth that God is bringing his people into a new government someday, into a new heavens, new earth, and Christ will reign. It's Christ whom we hope in. We can't expect Christ to rule now. We know that depravity is part of our society. And yet what we do as pilgrims and exiles here is we look forward to the promise that God will fulfill. There will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Then we go to Revelation 22, verses 1 through 3. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Here's this picture of God ruling. And the Lamb, there's the Son. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Notice what's going to happen. The nations will be healed. No more corruption. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. This is how we live now. We live now knowing that God has a plan for us that will come to fruition in the future. And so how is it that we as followers of Jesus live under a government that dismisses God? We come back to this reality. Jesus validated government, so we follow him. God created government. We obey government. We obey God. Let's pray.